This month we're focusing on forgotten virtues. Virtues that Paul writes about that describe what a life in Christ looks like. Virtues, if we embrace them like compassion, patience, kindness, self-control, make life better and make our relationships stronger and bring more glory and attention and love to Christ in our world. And so each week we've been focusing on one forgotten virtue. And so this week we're going to focus on the virtue of humility. And again, for the third week in a row, we're going to read the same passage, believing that there's enough work here for us to do for the entire year if we focus on each of these virtues. I would encourage you now to stand for the reading of the Word of God. Let's listen to what God might want to say to us today about humility. Paul writes, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through the psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now this word humility that is mentioned here by Paul in his letter is one that Paul mentions frequently. It's something that you will find throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament, references to pride and humility. Here's one example. Proverbs eleven twelve says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. This is the reading of the word of God and God's people did say, you may be seated. On Monday, my day didn't go as it was planned. I fell into a deep, dark computer hole. You ever have your day ruined by something that happens to something that you use every day for your work, a computer? Well, that morning I began to receive um, emails and phone calls from several individuals saying, uh, David, somebody has hacked your email and they're sending out messages telling them that you're in trouble and you need help and you need money. Now, this is the second time that somebody has grabbed a hold of my contact list and sent out an erroneous uh, scam in order to get money from people. And so the moment that happened, it took about two or three hours of my time. I immediately had to call the person who does all the computer work for our church. And let me just be honest, I love IT people, but I don't understand anything that they talk about. And so what I'm hoping will be a five-minute conversation that will end very quickly. Turns out to be a two hours of fix this, do this, do. I have no idea what we're talking about. And after the two hours is over, I feel completely depleted, exhausted, and demoralized. Well, it got worse. Later in the afternoon, after the problem was resolved, I sat down and finally opened up my laptop, 
to write my sermon on humility. I had a nice cup of coffee ready to share with my experience reading the Bible, writing about humility, and I dumped the entire cup of coffee on the top of my keyboard on my laptop. Needless to say, it was ruined. That day it didn't work. I drained all the coffee out of the keyboard. The next day it did work. And the third day I was told there was no way of repairing the laptop. You have to get another one because there's nothing we can do to save this laptop. Now you need to understand something about me is that I have the spiritual gift of spilling. (laughs) In fact, I spilled something just a moment before I came in here. I have been spilling something every day of my life since the day I was born. I remember one day going out to uh, dinner with some friends and I reached over to grab something on the table and when I did, I had a glass of ice water. It spilt over and drained across the table into the woman's lap that was sitting across from me. I apologized to her and then she said, it's okay, don't worry about it. Your wife warned me before we got here that you would spill something. (laughs) I have lots of stories, epic stories about spilling things. Epic stories. The best story may be though, when I was waiting tables at a restaurant in Nashville while I was going through school, I was trying to earn some money to pay for school and I was it, was, it was a busy, busy, busy night in the restaurant. It was just packed with people and people were coming and going out of the kitchen and we were all grabbing trays of food and carrying them to the tables. Not a mistake could be made or it interrupt the whole process. So I'm carrying this, t- this tray and it has five plates on it, prime rib, steak, baked potatoes, everything you can imagine, a full, and I'm walking down this crowded hallway and I stumble, I grab the edge of the tray And what do you do as you're falling with a tray full of food? I just jammed it up against the wall. (laughs) So none of the plates hit the floor. But I'm standing there in the hallway holding a tray full of food against the wall. And people are walking by. I stood there for, it felt like an eternity. What are you doing? I said, I'm not quite sure. (laughs) I backed away. Every plate piled on the floor. And it completely disrupted the flow of the restaurant, as you can imagine. Orders coming out late. The next day when I showed up for work, they took away my server's apron and my menu guide and assigned me the role of host. My waiting career was over. So it's not unusual that I'd spill something. So I go to the computer store. I'm explaining to the guy You know, I've ruined my computer. I spilled coffee on my computer. I'm asking if I get a new computer, is there any way I can have some coffee insurance for this to happen in the future? (laughs) And he looks at me and he says, in this sort of demeaning IT kind of voice, why'd you spill coffee on your laptop? (laughs) Simple answer, I said, I'm an idiot. Usually when you ask someone to talk about humility or ask them to talk about an experience with humility, usually they'll talk about a humiliating experience. Tell me about an experience you had with humility. They'll describe something that happened to you that humiliated them. A friend of mine who's a minister told me this story. He said that he was presiding over a funeral. He was a rather experienced minister, had been in ministry for a long time. He was doing what ministers do in the South. It was the custom. He was standing 
beside the casket as, as people were passing by to, to view the casket and then to greet the family. He then walked over to the casket, not realizing that his tie had somehow or another fallen into the casket. So when they closed the casket lid, they closed his tie up in the casket. He did not realize this until the humiliating moment the funeral home director began to push the casket down the aisle, dragging him behind it. <laughs> now, sometimes those humiliating moments are not humorous moments or funny moments or silly moments, but sometimes they're failures or weaknesses or experiences that happen to us that really do knock us down and make us take a reevaluation of ourselves. It is true that when we are humiliated, it does bring about humility. It will force us to look at ourselves in a new way. But I want to point out to you that when the Bible talks about humility, it's not talking about humiliation. It's talking about something very different. Humility is not something that happens to you. God does not want to humiliate you. In fact, there's nothing wrong with being proud of yourself. There's nothing wrong with having self-confidence. There's nothing wrong with wanting to achieve things good in the world. But what humility is, it's an accurate assessment of who you really are. The problem is most of the definitions that we get of humility oftentimes talk about degrading ourselves or putting ourselves down or knocking ourselves down. The dictionary will define it in that way. And C.S. Lewis, who wrote a lot about the subject on pride and humility, said this. He said that often we are taught that pretty women should consider themselves ugly and clever men should consider themselves fools. He said, but that's a wrong-headed definition of humility. Instead, humility does not mean thinking less of ourselves, but instead means thinking less about ourselves. What it is, humility, biblically, is having an accurate understanding of ourselves, our gifts and our weaknesses. Recognizing that we have weaknesses that we need God to help us with. God, here I am. I'm not who I want to be or who you desire to be. Would you help grow these other virtues in my life? It's also recognizing strengths. God, you have given me these strengths. You've given me these gifts. And now I want to use them for you. It's about serving in a higher purpose. It's about the focus not being on yourself. And what Lewis says is that the pride-filled man or woman can be so filled with pride that they focus on their weaknesses and their failures and also be pride-filled and focus on their successes. Because what does the pride-filled person do? Focused on the self. I had this experience in Chicago a few months ago. I was there for the Chicago Marathon, and sometimes when I run a marathon, I have trouble drinking water during the marathon, and I get dehydrated. It's hard for me to grab a cup when I'm running and drink the water. And oftentimes, when I have not dehydrated properly during the race, at the end of the race, I will cramp. This day, it was unseasonably warm, and when I crossed the finish line there in Chicago, I walked to the finish, I mean, I, I ran to the finish, and stopped immediately after running for three hours and 45 minutes without stopping. I bent over and this nice woman put the finisher's medal around my neck and immediately you can imagine what happened. 
my legs from the knees down, completely cramped up, my feet and everything, and I screamed out in excruciating pain. And if the woman had not been there, I probably would have hit the ground because I could not, because both were cramping. This nice woman was nice enough to take a glass of water, uh, a bottle of water, icy water, and rub it on my calves and walk with me for 100 yards. She said, are you okay? I said, I think so. But I realized that, in, that I was going to have to keep walking because if I stopped walking, I was going to cramp up and hit the ground. The problem was, as you were exiting the venue of the runners to meet with your family, the crowd goes into a funnel where you have to go through a gate about this narrow. There were hundreds of people trying to go through this narrow gate and suddenly it dawns on me, I'm going to get in the middle of this funnel, I'm going to stop and I'm going to cramp and I'm going to hit the ground. What do I do? So I walked around in a circle thinking about it for a minute and then I did this. Get out of my way, I'm going to get a cramp. Get out of my way, I'm going to get a cramp. And the guy next to me says, he says this, do you think you're the only person that ran a marathon in Chicago today? The point is that humility is recognizing that you're not the only person that's hurting, you're not the only person that's wounded, not the only person that is smart, not the only, you're putting others ahead of yourself. I listened to an interview this week with Dabo Sweeney, who is the head coach of the Clemson Tigers, after they had absolutely destroyed, annihilated, crushed, obliterated, annihilated Alabama. <laughs> and he was being interviewed by Stephen A. Smith. Now, if anybody had a reason to pump his chest, it was Dabo Sweeney. He had just won the Bear Bryant Award for college, best college coach in America three out of the last four times. And, and Steve A. Smith, who's not one to give out compliments, said to him, said, arguably, you're the best coach in college football today. You have knocked, you have knocked, he said, you know, Saban down off his throne. You're the man and everybody wants to play for you. How are you feeling about yourself today? Now, I didn't expect him to go, that's right, I'm the best. I'm better than anybody else. I'm the greatest coach. I've knocked Saban. I'm the new king of college football. You don't expect him to say that. Because whenever someone is complimented in a great victory like that, they always have the humble answer. It doesn't necessarily make them humble. It just means they know the right thing to say. But in this situation, I know enough about him to know that he is truly a humble person. He then says, he doesn't deny the success. He says, well, thank you very much. It was a great moment. I really appreciate it. I am really proud that we were able to accomplish this. But then what did he do? He thanked all the coaches that work with him, his team deflected the praise to his team, deflected the praise to his uh, team, his, his actual players and their parents to the university. He then said there are a lot of great coaches around the country doing a lot of great job, jobs. My job is to raise men. It's not championships. Raise young men. And I'm just really, really thankful. Now, I believe him. You know why I believe him? Because if you really want to truly be great at something, if you want to accomplish something great, it comes with humility. You can do something good once, but to do something great over and over again means that you're going to serve the people around you, put other people ahead of you, put the cause above yourself. You'll have this ferocious commitment to succeed, to make your organization succeed, your family succeed. And people want to follow someone who is like that. That is the picture of humility. 
It is living for something bigger than yourself. Not being humiliated. Using your gifts and your weaknesses in order to do something good for someone else and for the world. Now let's look to our example. The best example I can think of, obviously, is Jesus. And I want to read to you this description of Jesus that's written here in Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul gives this magnificent description of who Jesus is. The title of it is, The Supremacy of the Son of God. Supremacy. This is what he says. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. Get the picture? Jesus is pretty impressive. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is above everything. And he says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body. He is the head of the church. What a great description of Jesus. Now, if anybody had reason to thump his chest, if anybody had a reason to do an end zone victory dance after he was born, look at me, look at me, and to take a selfie next to the manger, it would have been Jesus. He's the greatest of all time, the best there ever was. But look at how he lived his life. He humbled himself. He was born a defenseless baby to ordinary parents, born the same way that every other human being is born. He lived an ordinary life, an obscure life for 30 years with an ordinary family doing menial chores and working beside his father in the family business. He did not say, Mom, I don't have to take out the garbage. I don't have to rake the leaves. I'm the son of God. When he was baptized, he did not demand everyone get out of the way. He got in line with everybody else and walked down in the water the same as everyone else and was baptized the same as everyone else. When he was teaching and preaching, he put his own physical and spiritual needs ahead of everyone else, oftentimes serving and teaching and caring for people when he was depleted spiritually physically exhausted, and hungry himself. He spent time and associated and made friends and befriended the socially ostracized, the outcast, and the left behind and the forgotten at his own personal cost to his own reputation. He never considered anyone better than him or lower than him. Everybody was the same, worthy of his love. On the night before he died, before he was put on trial, Jesus knew his disciples would fail him and would betray him. And yet he took off the robe that was around his waist. He bent down and took, took their feet in his hands and took on the form of a servant and washed their feet. And looked at them and said, if you want to be truly great, truly great in this world, be a servant. For the Son of Man came to serve and not to be served. And then in the ultimate act of sacrifice, Jesus was taken to the temple, he was taken the outside of the temple, and he was crucified on a garbage heap between thieves for the sins of the world, laying down all his power in humility to give mercy to the world. 
That's why Paul would later say these words. Paul would say in another letter to the Philippians, he would say to anyone who would listen, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others better than yourselves, putting their needs ahead of your own. Have the same attitude as Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count his equality with God as something to be exploited for his own gain, but instead took on the form of a servant and became a slave even to the point of death. To the point of humility, he humbled himself that then God raised him up so that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Why? Because of his humility. What it is that attracts people to Jesus is not his power, but that he laid down his power and his humility. This is why this is such a profound virtue for all of us to really consider in our lives. Because the same thing as we begin to reflect that humility in our lives to put other people ahead of us, to not demand our own rights, things begin to get better everywhere. Let's just think for a minute about your friendships and think about your marriage. Think about how you raise your children. This is the truth. Humility, humility heals marriages, friendships, and relationships. Whereas pride kills marriages and relationships. Because prideful people are defensive, angry, blame-shifting, and focused on self. And they constantly believe that the problem is with the other person and not with them. As a result, they can't listen. And what happens? Pride grows opposition. But humility opens doors. So whether it's a relationship, whether it's a marriage, where you work, a friendship or anything, this is what humility says. Humility says, I'm focused on you ahead of me. I'm going to give you my full attention. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to seek to understand you before I try to understand myself. I'm going to listen with my eyes, my ears, and my heart, and I'm going to assume the best about you, and I'm going to work on changing me before I work on changing you. And I'm going to respect your feelings regardless of whether they make sense to me or not, and I'm going to treat you with gentleness and compassion, and I'm going to forgive you no matter what. You see, Romans 12.10 says this, that we are to outdo one another in showing honor to one another. You begin to live that way and watch what happens. Everything in life gets better. Everything. Everything improves. Humility makes the workplace better. Find opportunities to serve. Go into the place, to the lunchroom where you work, and you remember the guy that came in with a can of Campbell's soup and put it in the microwave and didn't cover it and splashed all over the inside of the microwave that irritates you so badly he does it every day. Instead of complaining, go in and clean out the inside of the microwave and clean off the coffee station and sweep up the floor. Serve others and watch how you win the trust and the love of others and watch everyone around you follow your example. One of the biggest problems that we have as Christians in the world today is that Christians are too spiritually prideful. And I want to tell you, we are not going to win a world to Jesus Christ by telling the world why they're wrong or standing above them and telling them why we're right. Because that's not how the world was won to Jesus. 
The world was one to Jesus when Jesus laid his life down on the cross and the world looked at him and saw him humbly dying on the cross for the sins of the world. If we want the world to know that Jesus is the one that is the Lord and Savior of the universe who has the plan for the world, if we want to do that, then what we have to do for the world is to do what he did. Instead of demanding that we get our rights, then instead we lay our lives down for the world and humility and show them what God is rather than telling them that they're wrong. Do this and your life will get better. Do this, your work will be better. Do this, your family will be better. And I end with this one last thought. Don't you think that this was the best message you've ever heard on humility? <laughs> uh,